are now listening to the Civic Hacker Podcast. I'm your host, Lori McNeil. For more, go to civic-hackers.org. Hey, before we get started, I just want to jump in and let you know that the next Civic Hacker Summit is coming online soon. So you want to make sure you head over to civichackersummit.com and get your free pass. There's going to be a link in the show notes and we'll be putting out links on our socials and everywhere else I can think of to spread the word that the summit is coming this November and I look forward to to seeing you there. It is virtual. It is free. It is amazing. And you definitely want to be a part of it. So head over to civichackersummit.com today and register. Societies worldwide grapple with the fact that technology is a double-edged sword. The digital realm is posing emergent challenges to many important aspects of civil society, including peace. Traditional peace-building techniques often struggle to counteract the pervasive negative impacts of modern technology, and today we are seeing polarization and divisions that are made possible by the speed, scale, and depth of technology's integration into our lives. The impact of this is seen and felt both online and offline. Digital platforms can be potent amplifiers of election violence, governance challenges, extremism, and conflict. Recognizing the intricate interplay between technology and societal conflicts, an organization called How to Build Up crafts innovative interventions aimed at engaging with and transforming conflicts in our increasingly digitized world. Today's episode features Caleb Kachui, who is, among many other amazing things, the Africa lead at How to Build Up. He talks to us about how the organization develops and adapts digital tools to emphasize connection, collaboration, and inclusivity. How to build up judiciously marries traditional peace-building practices with the tech solutions that they build. This holistic approach ensures that they tackle both age-old challenges using new tools and new tech-induced problems with tried-and-true methods. Caleb has a lot of experience and insight in the peace tech space, and I'm thrilled to be able to share this conversation with you up next. So Caleb, thank you so much for being here and coming to the summit. Thank you. Thank you very Um, much. Yeah, I'm, you know, really Looking forward to um, sharing this, you know, conversation with everybody and your experience, especially since, um, you know, given the timing of this, I know mm-hmm. plenty of folks are concerned about their community and, you know, some of the more uh, violent elements that seem to be gaining traction. And so, um, mm-hmm. I think this will be, you know, hopeful for people. I think your insights, you know, will be quite helpful, um, no matter where people are, but. Um, yeah, let's start off by just letting folks know more about what you do and who you are. So can you share some um, information about your background and 
um, mm-hmm. how you came to be working for Buildup. Yeah. Um, so my name is Akaleb Kichuhi. I'm currently based in Nairobi. Um, and I think of myself as a peace builder first um, and a technologist uh, second. Um, and uh, I've, I've, my background is in computer science and I've applied it in peace building processes for now roughly 10 years. And um, my experience goes back um, as far as 2012, uh, where I started working on mobile technologies in, uh, in in an election process in Tanzania, where we were mapping uh, election processes in Tanzania. And the idea was just to have a channel of where people could engage uh, and ask questions about the process, uh, where, you know, Tanzania has never been a really conflict, you know, from country. But then that approach was then used in Kenya, and we were able to use it in Kenya um, in the referendum process when we were passing a new constitution. And... Um, in the election of 2013, um, uh, 2013, 2017, and now recently for 2022. And during that period, I worked with different organizations. I started working with Sisi Niamani, which was um, based in Nairobi, Kenya, but uh, was set up by Rachel Brown, who's um, you know also another peace builder in this space. Um, but then through, throughout from that uh, 2013, now that period, worked with Sisi Niamani and then moved over to a different organization. Um, and still working in civic tech and then moved again to back to peace building, um, in 2015 and joined build up where I'm currently at in 2020 or uh, October of 2020. So I've been there for two years. And in, in that space, in the, the build up space, I work in the Ap- Africa portfolio where I'm the Africa lead and I focus mainly on applying technology in conf- I mean, in uh, yeah, in peace building processes, or looking at how technology is being used in conflict spaces, and trying to see how that can be addressed either by tech companies, by civil society organizations, or by governments um, within those uh, those contexts. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, had you in, encountered um, build up where, like, when you were doing other peace building work, like, how mm-hmm. did you? end up connecting with them and what's kind of their um niche i, I guess you would say you know because yeah. it sounds like they do operate in multiple focusing on multiple countries yeah so i i learned about build up uh when i was working in my previous organization uh called the peace tech lab and um i was actually doing my masters and uh i was m- mapping peace building organizations across the world that were using technology tools specifically um you know to to drive peace and they had this amazing map where they had mapped out all the different organizations across the world and i really wanted to get access to that map and analyze the map and see what type of organizations were you know were doing this type of work were they youth led were they women led were they like grassroots organizations were they you know like large scale organizations and um unfortunately they had stopped that process so so we had a discussion with the person who responded to me and I started following their work and I, I became very curious about what they were doing. And I started seeing that, um, you know, they were also looking at things like hate speech and misinformation, specifically on social media platforms, going a bit deeper into just mapping the connections and connectivity. Um, and, um, yeah, and then when COVID hit, you know, I was like, this is an opportunity to explore, um, you know, other opportunity out there. And when I joined BuildUp, you know, one of the things I realized was they had, they, you know, we have a very uh, clear way of, uh, you know, 
uh, our work uh, pillars. So the one, we have three pillars where we say we work in. And the first one is on digital conflict. And digital conflict is exploring the harms that are online and working with local actors to engage in the same same space to you know to address those harms um, and this range from misinformation propaganda hate speech dangerous speech and all you know just a range uh, of harms that uh, happen online and uh, so that's on digital conflict and then we have another pillar on participatory processes and this is support of uh, participatory processes like elections like we've just completed in kenya we has we are supporting elections right now in Somalia and Somaliland, um, and the idea there is to bring in innovation in how people can use again technology to you know to engage in those processes that you know require uh, public participation, and not only just bring in technology but have for instance if it's a study or a, or a research you have the communities um, applying the technology, collecting the data, analyzing that data, drawing out the insights that they want to highlight. And then bringing in government officials or lawmakers or policymakers and saying, here's the data we collected, here are the things we brought out, and here's where we want to have a discussion. So basically making the data collection process community driven as opposed to having like an external actor drawing in, coming in and doing their own study and saying, community X has a problem Y, you know, yet, you know, but you want the communities to be, to be driving that. So that's some participatory processes. And then the third one is the peace fellows. Um, a peace fellows, it's a part of a fellowship program where we identify actors across the world who are already doing peace building work and, as, and are trying to bring in technology into that work to even make it more efficient, to even make it much more, you know, uh, and impactful. So we explore with them different tools, um, and we pilot them, uh, in different phases. And then the one that works, uh, we, we mentor them for a whole year. And then after that one year, we can fully stand up the, that uh, solution and continue. And we've done that in different countries. So we have presence in Africa, um, the Middle East, uh, in the US and uh, in Latin America, where we've also uh, done uh, various programs. Yeah. And we also have an, an annual conference where we organize, we bring in um, uh, different practitioners in this space to share what they're doing so that people can you know, learn from each other and engage as well. Right. Um, so, and then you mentioned um, areas where you're active. Have you all been um, observing or active at all in in Europe? Um, you know where we're seeing you know the conflicts in Ukraine. Yeah. So so we are not currently working in Ukraine. Um, and uh, for instance, in Europe, we have had different programs in the past. For instance, there's one program that was looking at LGBTI um, inclusion and uh, looking at how uh, LGBTIQI community were being affected or targeted on social media platforms and trying to find solutions to how do we engage these spaces and hold communities accountable. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that project, uh, which was in collaboration with Stonewall in the UK. Um, and then um, we just um, started looking at polarization uh, in Europe uh, when it comes to the topic of refugees. Yes. So we have not really gotten into Ukraine um, because we, you know, we are not in that, uh, we don't have, we don't work in that space of, you know, active combat uh, okay. violence. And um, so, but uh, we are exploring, for instance, how misinformation in that crisis is trickling into different parts of the world. Like, for instance, how um, refugees of, of African descent, when they were moving from Ukraine after you know the, the conflict started, they 
they were being targeted with misinformation on where to get uh, assistance so that they, you know, specifically for African uh, migrants. Wow. So things like that kind of, you know, play a role in that type of conflict. Um, and then working, you know, participating in forums where we share this information. Like the other day, we just have, a, we had a forum with the European University Institute where we are sharing some of these findings so that they can also, you know, pick them up and see how they can apply in their policy work. Yeah. Okay. And um, what kind of tools are you in, you know, in the program that you mentioned where you're um, mentoring, mm-hmm. you know, peace, peace builders, um, bringing technology into their practice? Like what are yeah. the kinds of opportunities um, for, you know, tech to actually help them that you're seeing? Um, that are common, yeah. or, you know, what are the kind of the tools that are emerging? Yeah, so it really depends on the context and the, it's a range of tools. So for instance, um, uh, they are, for instance, in the Middle East, we supported a partner or a fellow to develop a game and, um, and where we, we saw gaming as an, as an entry point to engage the youth, uh, to participate in conversations about, uh, marginalization and discrimination and polarization. And um, in uh, in in Colombia, we worked with um, uh, another fellow to, to develop a, an app that would encourage people to participate in budget processes mm-hmm. that were a point of contention that would then spiral into conflict. Um, so it it really ranges from a mobile app to uh, in in Myanmar, we worked with um, a civil society organization that used a WhatsApp bot to reach out to the public about misinformation and disinformation and provide them with fact-checked information about, you know, any question that they had. So if they wanted to know like, oh, we had that 10 people were killed the other day by the military, is that true? And then the bot would then collect that information and then that would be checked and then would be sent back to the public. So it really depends on where the, the, the fellow is and it can range from SMS all the way to, you know, a gaming, uh, platform where people can engage and then learn through that uh, also okay yeah i think that um these days like you know people may um consider you know using data and technology for helping with many social issues Mm -hmm. but um in terms of you know thinking about building peace Mm -hmm. you know there may be some skepticism um you know because we often think about it in terms of like interpersonal or Mm. um you know the government you know like where we're looking at actual war right (laughs) like how do you fix that um you know where that's not really i guess it's um we're trying to not get to that place of and then Mm -hmm. you know in the digital age that this goes beyond just you know the conversation that you and i have um and so how have you seen, um, you know, the perception of the usefulness of technology in peace building change over time, you know, as we've, we've gone from, you know, your um, mentioned your project, you know, with CC mm-hmm. Yamani, which we had Rachel on last year to talk about that. But um, yeah. yeah, people are, who aren't familiar, maybe you can talk about like how that technology, you know, back then versus, mm-hmm. um you know, how things have changed <laughs> in the landscape yeah. over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in just a brief overview of the Sicinia Money project, we used um, in 2013, in the 2013 elections in Kenya, 
we were using SMS to to reach out to communities um, with peace messaging and also to to understand their needs um, and their fears in the electoral process and address them in collaboration with uh, the the agencies that were responsible for the election. So, so for instance, if there were tensions in the communities that uh, you know during an election, the communities would report through that number, and then would alert uh, the, the agencies that were responsible to addressing those tensions. And the agencies ranged from police and law enforcement to local community um, organizations that you know were able to hold dialogue and forums in the community, um, to even youth leaders who were able to talk to their fellow youth. Who are already being agitated or you know rioting and you know planning to cause violence. So so the the system was SMS based where people could just dial in a short code and send the you know questions uh, and or their concerns and then we would respond to that and then part of the of the process was also to share with them uh, civic education, vote education information, and also just peace messaging, encouraging them to continue being peaceful in societies that are already peaceful and. That was that strategy was useful because it was able to address some of the gaps that we saw in an election where between voting and the announcement of the results, there was this gap where a lot of misinformation would fly. And if there was no you know, uh, source of truth, then people would get into this panic and uh, you know, become very fearful and then be easily be targeted to you know, with more information, which would then catalyze violence. So being able to fill that gap with that information was quite timely and useful in that process. But um, one thing I'll say is between then, when in the 2013, and we had started some of the project earlier on, 2013 was just like the major work we did in the election, but we had done previous work before. Um, what I can say is around that time, there was a lot of skepticism on the use of technology because a lot of the uh, peace building practices were, you know, the traditional face-to-face mediation processes where you meet the different parties have a dialogue with them you know air out all the issues um and uh, part of the skepticism was based on the fact that peace builders did not have the necessary tools to understand what was happening on the digital space or in the tech technology space so for instance it was not clear how hate speech was spreading on on sms or how hate misinformation was spreading in the same platform or on radio right so there was anecdotal evidence but it wasn't enough to, you know, to trigger a conversation where people are saying, well, we need to do something about it. Unlike when a violent break, a violent event breaks out, there is actually a record. Maybe it's recorded on the news. You can see the number of casualties, which is completely offline. There's clear evidence of that. And, you know, even if it's not the peace builders who are documenting it, somebody else will document it and the peace builders will pick it up and say, there's need for us in that space. Um, so. So between that time when we were, you know, we were, we were, we were rolling out our SMS platform in the different counties, even people would ask us, so how does this work and how, how will this prevent violence? And we were basically saying that this is just, it's not necessarily to prevent violence, but it's to delay the process through which, you know, that window through which um, misinformation and hate speech triggers the, the violent event so that um, an actor can respond and prevent it to you know from from escalating so for instance if somebody said there were tensions in my community and we feel like by tomorrow this will be you know really really bad it's like an early warning saying you need to do something before tomorrow so the message comes into the system and then the system then deploys 
a message to you know let's say the the local community leaders who can respond and then they go in and they become like the the spoilers of that process that was already in in, in place um and so so what you notice is the technology itself was not the 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 peace building technology or you know people say peace tech it was a combination of the technology and the human intervention so so when you told people about technology preventing conflict they usually removed the human intervention and only focus on the technology so that became really you know confusing and even uh, you know the skepticism became quite high in terms of how it would be used but now um today um it's it's very evident it's very clear um in terms of how these harms appear online it's not just um a few isolated incidences these are countries and states where people are being attacked women are being marginalized and bullied online we're seeing ethnic groups being you know swarmed by bots so there's a lot more evidence that now the peace building community has decided to wake up and look and say well we need technology actors to the table it's not no longer just us going to respond but we need to bring in different stakeholders because it's becoming better yeah yeah um and that's a really you know that point about the human actor really kind of resonates as i look at you know what in the case of the us for example you know if you mm-hmm. have all of us in fact you know have access yeah. to um i shouldn't say all of us a lot of us have access yeah. to you know certain technological tools and mm-hmm. you know here we've seen where if we had a similar thing say there are officials at the local level who given the opportunity to be an actor to disrupt a misinformation campaign mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. not see it as being in their political benefit to actually do that i mean imagine mm. if the folks that you all had in you know network with you know decided yeah. that oh actually we're not going to send those text messages or we're going to you know yes. put fuel on the fire instead of yeah um, exactly. <laughs> you know, since you know, being part of the um, bringing things down, like it, yeah, absolutely. There's the technology, but you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the folks wielding the tools, yeah, have to exactly. be, um, yeah, of the of yeah. the peace building mindset as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then uh, you mentioned the, I guess you started with how to build up in the pandemic times. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're still in the pandemic times, but yeah. Um, you know, so I was curious about, um, you know, how things um, look different once, mm-hmm. you know, because I think, well, maybe we should cover like the the monitoring that's happening um, yeah. of what you all look at. Like, it's not like me looking at my feed and being like, oh, I see this, you know, so, so I want to share this one thing. Like, it's, you know, this is more at scale, right? Um, yeah. Than, like, yeah. Individual. Um, can do with just like their eyes and scrolling and Mm -hmm. so like when you're looking at you know that body of data um Mm -hmm. how did that change you know for did it change um during the pandemic when there's more people online as more people and more bots get online or get into these platforms um the signals you know the signal detection how how is that being affected it is Mm -hmm. so um so internally at BuildUp, we have uh, we have built our own social media monitoring platform. It's called Phoenix, and part of that was uh, you know that that building of an internal tool instead of taking an off off the shelf platform to do them because there are quite a lot of tools out there 
that exist. Uh, part of that was driven by the fact that uh, most of those tools that exist out there are used for commercial purposes. You know, they 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 used to mark you know to to monitor brands and see how your brand is doing. Let's say it's Coca Cola or something like. Oh, people are talking about our brand. They're saying it's too sugary and all that. Or it's like you're selling a shoe, for instance, right? So yeah. it's very difficult to monitor attentions using those tools because they're not meant to monitor such things. Those are intangible. They're usually looking at specific metrics. Mm-hmm. So, so when you build our tool, part of the, you know, when we were looking at social media spaces, there was already misinformation and disinformation existing before COVID. That you know was already looking at you know targeting elections um, and other you know political processes uh, that were happening in different countries. So when COVID hit, I, I remember a lot of conversations that were emerging where people talk, were talking about this thing called the infodemic, mm. and basically saying there's a lot of misinformation that is spreading. And um, one of the things we were saying is, yeah, this has always been there. It's just that more people are online. And they have more time to share it and look at it and, you know, more eyeballs to say, have you seen this? And like before where, you know, there was, a, you know, pre-COVID, the, the systems in place were in such that, you know, the time you'd spend online was far more reduced because of other prior, competing priorities. Mm-hmm. So COVID comes in and it, it changes this dynamic of how much time you spend on social media. And that then triggers basically the, the level of misinformation that was already there now has, uh, it's like it's been boosted by more eyeballs and more like keys on the keyboard, right? So you see something that, um, you probably would not have seen if, it, if you are not working in front of your computer the whole day or sitting at home the whole day and, you know, spending more time online mm-hmm. and you either decide to share it, question it, comment on it even say you're angry or even counter it, right? So you're, you're basically interacting with that content. So so the interaction of that type of content is information and hate speech and, you know, just polarizing information, you know, grew quite uh, significantly. And um, it made it easier for us to identify where the, you know, the, the tensions were. However, even with that ease of identification, the challenge was the volume of the content. Because now, you know, with more people commenting, now you're trying to figure out, are they supporting it? Are they condemning it? Mm-hmm. And also not just one type of misinformation, but now you have multiple threads, you know, either some of it is targeting race, some of it is targeting the, 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 the vaccine, some of it is targeting the spread of the virus. So you, we had all of these uh, different layers and it was a question of what do we prioritize? Because it's a it's an ecosystem where all of it is connected. Mm-hmm. Where if we say that we blame one community for introducing the virus and then we say, well, but we cannot run away from it because we, you know, the, the medication out there is also part of a society to, to harm, I don't know, people of color or something like that. So it's very connected in the sense of it's very difficult to tackle one and say, well, I'm just going to tackle the race or the vaccine or the, you know. So, so, so in terms of monitoring the content, it became easier to, to look at it and say, well, this account seems to be pushing a lot of propaganda and misinformation and it's targeting one particular group. But then that's just one in a pool. So the volume was quite high. Um, and, you know, if you've always been monitoring misinformation at a certain volume and then it's like multiplied tenfold, you have to start thinking about what do you prioritize or do you increase your staff members? So there's always that tension between what to look at, especially not in social media. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find that 
you know, so once you've identified, you know, some of these issues, mm-hmm. um, you know, what are, is it within your scope to you yeah. know, take action or are you advocating mm. for the platforms to take action? Like, how does that yeah. work? Yeah, so so that's a quite interesting uh, question because it it touches on now the response to some of these harms we're seeing online. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, when peace-building organizations came into the space, they saw, you know, they were struggling because they could not see the space. And then it was not very clear how to respond online because now, um, and and one thing also I, I learned along the way was a lot of the strategies that are being used today were borrowed from the marketing industry, even by peace builders. So when you th- see things like hashtagging, these are things that are brought from the marketing industry to, to gain reach. But peace building is not really about reach, it's about depth, right? Yeah. So getting depth on social media was, you know, was quite challenging. So, so in 2020, around that period, actually, we launched a program in Kenya and um, it's on digital peace building. And the idea behind digital peace building is we were asking ourselves, we are peace builders. We know how to engage offline. How would we do it online? How do we um, analyze the context? How do we bring stakeholders? How do we facilitate dialogue? So, so we trained, um, we worked with six universities and we trained students on how to engage in these spaces because we said they are the ones who are in these spaces. I might sit in Nairobi, but I will never be in a space where, uh, uh, you know, a 20 year old is in. And we're seeing a lot of hate either by uh, against uh, targeting a community or a gender. Mm-hmm. I might know about it, but I'll never be in that space because I'm not in the same group. I'm, you know, and it's not just like one open space. So we say, well, these are the people who are seeing this content. Let's train them on how to engage on this. Um, so we were piloting a program that we had done in the US, actually, it was called the Commons. And the idea is it starts with the, with the low level engagement. Um, or lightweight engagement to a very complex engagement where you're able to facilitate um, pol- depolarizing dialogue online. So the you know you start with like sharing positive messaging, which is what a lot of peace builders are still at. We're just oh we this is the things that unite us as Kenyans. And then moving into um, changing, creating change from within, where you're looking at your you know your close networks, you know your friends who are already sharing content that is hateful. And starting with those ones first, because you have a trust there. And then moving to humanizing peace, where you share your own stories on social media that have, you know, made you change from, you know, in your own society or look at communities differently. Um, and then listening and de-escalating conversations where you get into a space and you listen to other people who are, you know, out there shouting and screaming at the top of their lungs, targeting another community. But you're listening and you're trying to understand why are you hateful? And trying to de-escalate that conversation. And then the, the most challenging one is facilitating depolarizing dialogues on social media spaces. So going, for instance, in a comment thread that, let's say, I post a comment about something, right? Uh, something that is polarizing. And then the thread, the comment thread is very heated. And then a student comes in and holds that space and says, well, it seems that there's a lot of tension here and points out the different uh, argument and then tries to facilitate dialogue on a thread. And it is really difficult. But when when we when we tested it and we saw that it didn't have traction, we realized that this is, you know, it's it's working. And people are actually now sort of lowering their their you know their voices and having a, a civil discussion where they're saying, Well, I, I don't like this group because of XYZ. They did one, two, three, 
they're basically trying to justify, you know, so instead of just saying, oh, you are XYZ and I'm not going to talk to you, but basically trying to explain why they, they don't like one particular community. And then the other community is saying, well, maybe you need to look at it this way and instead of one way or the other. So we're to a point where you can, we can disagree, for instance, on a policy, but we should not be attacking one another. So we've seen that work. Um, and that is on the community level. And that is what we're now pushing for more of, where we're saying, let's remove the middle person who says, I am build up. I'm going to come and do a peace messaging campaign in Kenya and build peace. I can't do that. I need to commit communities already in those spaces to try and depolarize their own spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other uh, tier is to engage with uh, tech companies where we bring in tech companies and say, this is the data that we're seeing on your platforms. What are you doing about it? Uh, some of them have, uh, you know, have taken down content that is hateful and that is targeting particular groups. Um, some of them say, well, this doesn't go against our policy. So we're in those discussions where we're saying, look, in this context and in this country, this goes against their law. But in your policy, you're saying it doesn't. So we need to have some level of common ground where we can be able to agree what stays up and what doesn't stay up. Otherwise, it's like the tech companies win by their own policies and do not really factor in that this can be very harmful in a particular context if it's left to stay out. So um, so we're in those conversations often um, and always pushing to encourage civil society organizations to take up some of these tools to monitor and see by themselves. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be, we try and move away from I'm doing the monitoring for them and I'm telling them what social media looks like. We want them to do it for themselves and see what it looks like so that they, they see the need for them to be in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And do you see the tech companies, you know, because they, I just don't believe that they don't see what you see, right? (laughs) Um, I guess there's the, there's not the incentive to Mm -hmm, to arrive at the same place via analysis. Yeah. Uh, but you know, do do they seem surprised usually when you're you're pointing out um, something that's mm-hmm. kind of developing, or uh, yeah. is it generally receptive? But then you know, the they play the that's our not against our policies card. <laughs> um, when when information is is uh, well, let's say if there is a is a major, um, I'm just thinking of like an election. Right. Yeah. Uh, when there's an election, they get, they get surprised because of the way the narratives change very quickly. And having local understanding allows you to pinpoint that this is hateful. And it's, you know, the nuance that comes with those, some of the subtle messaging, um, and uh, the hate that is hidden with be, you know, in that sometimes it takes them a while to catch it. Uh, because, uh, one of the reasons is, the the teams that they hire to do their social media flagging or monitoring are not peace builders. Really. They're just like any other Kenyan who will sit in front of a computer and see, you know, this is hateful, this is not hateful. But um, when we're in this space and we're monitoring content for quite a long time, we start to see those cues where, you know, when this key turn is now coming into the surface of social media and we see the way it's being used, then we can easily say, well, let's check this. And when we check with our communities, that where those terms are being used, they tell us this is actually, you know, hate speech or harmful content. Mm-hmm. So when we when we bring this to the surface, they say, well, we are going to check it. We didn't know this existed. Thank you for, you know, bringing it to our attention. We're going to check it with our community, you know, with our actor, with flaggers. 
Now, the challenge is whether the flaggers see it the same way we see it, right? Because the flaggers can say, well, this is not hate speech. Who told it is hate speech, right? Because they're basing it off of their own opinions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's usually a tension there. So, for instance, in, in one case, we had a back and forth to a point where now they actually saw that this was actually harmful content because it took some time for them to see it. And by, by the time they saw it, it was already spreading, right? Mm-hmm. And now they... They start to listen because, uh, for instance, um, Facebook and TikTok, and I think even uh, Twitter, but I'd love to confirm for Twitter, they have this program called the Trusted Flagger Program or the Trusted Partner Program, where they work with local communities to understand the this subtle dynamics on social media and how it's showing up to harm communities. And uh, because they really understand, they started to see perhaps that they can't understand all of it, even with the, you know, with the, with the human monitors. So they need somebody who understands the context. For instance, they have a trusted partner that looks at um, child pornography mm. or, you know, bullying and harassment of women or hate speech and misinformation. So, you know, by having that network, they, I mean, they can try and get a bit more uh, nuanced information. So the question is whether they act on it. And it's usually a 50-50 chance for them to work on it. Sometimes they'll say, well, yeah, this we've seen, it's actually hateful. And they'll respond and flag it and, you know, either reduce the, the virality of the content or outrightly just remove it from the platform. Sometimes they'll say, well, this is, doesn't go against our policy. And uh, that's the tension where we sit in terms of, you know, where the policies do not really reflect what the, the realities of the context is or are um, and whether those can be addressed is something that we're still trying to, to figure out. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love that, you know, you were, you were able to see the, you know, interruption, you know, the peace building participant in social media actually mm-hmm. able to shift, you know, conversations. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, for, you know, many people that just, they're like leaving the space, right? Like they're like, I'm not going to deal with this. Um, yeah. You know, and there's, you know, I, I can understand that, but um, you know, then the, there's another camp that will throw up their hands and, you know, say that the algorithms like this, the platforms themselves are mm-hmm. so in control of what's going to be experienced by your community members on that platform. Yeah. And mm-hmm. from what you just described, you know, it sounds like mm-hmm. if enough, folks were um, aware of and realized that it was possible, no matter what is being served up, that mm-hmm. there is a, a manner in which we can engage in dialogue um, digitally yeah. to, you know, make things have less harmful impacts um, yeah. when it is shared, you know, um, I think it, it feels a lot less futile, you know, um, yeah. it feels hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I think there is a, when it comes to the uh, the algorithm, there is, of course, a huge challenge in terms of how much polarization it can trigger in terms of how it pushes people towards certain content and all of that. And, um, I mean, that's, that's a major problem. And, uh, for, you know, considering that some of this, I mean, these companies are for profit, the, there's always going to have, the tension is always going to be there where they're trying to figure out how do we maximize our profits? Versus how do we control the algorithm such that it doesn't, even if, as it's trying to maximize profits, it doesn't push for, for harm. And, you know, we usually say, well, 
profit wins because of where we are today, right? Yeah. So, so just because of that and understanding that that is happening at that level, we try and diversify our efforts. So they're saying, well, the communities can also have their own community standards where we don't necessarily need to wait for Facebook to tell us what we can do or what we can do. But even as communities are creating their own groups, right? Let's say it's a political discussion group. They can say, well, in this group, you shall not be allowed to use hate, hateful language. And if you use hateful language, you won't even wait for Facebook. We are going to kick you out of this group, right? So that mm-hmm. way, there's part of that engagement that, you know, that keeps the societies, um, uh, engaged, uh, in sort of, the, it gives them agency in managing this content. And also still on the other side, you're pushing for Facebook saying, well, communities can do this forever. You need to, you know, change at least to some level and meet them halfway. Otherwise, it's going, always going to be, we are fighting Facebook. And we're not doing anything on our side, you know, or we are working with communities and we're not pushing Facebook. So always, or Facebook as a representation of any other tech company. Um, yeah, but yeah, so we need those dual approaches where you know, it's both happening in both fronts. Yeah. Um, and so another thing I wanted to ask you about um, was, you know, we talked about kind of the, training and you know uh dialogue um, techniques mm-hmm. that you were able to see be successful in digital yeah. and so yeah. what's the flip side you know what what are some things that you know you've maybe tried out um to bring to you know to make that um adaptation um mm-hmm. from the peace builders toolbox um you know that just can't that doesn't translate well to digital yeah well I think there is, um, so even, even with the dialogue, for instance, um, the, the, if you think about how offline dialogues work, they take a long process. They is usually like a slow burn process mm-hmm. towards, you know, change. Um, and we realized first time that won't work, for instance, on social media because social media moves so fast. What is news today in the next five minutes, for instance, on Twitter is no longer news because somebody else has posted something much more, you know, polarizing, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and we had to adjust to those conversations so that it's also moving at that speed where we say, well, we'll try and move people from that, uh, conversation into another conversation where we can at least buy some more time um because the the, the comments um were already you know the, the rate at which they were being generated was already high and we said well we need to match up that speed but then even in the process of trying to engage in that conversation we are trying also to move these um, individuals into another space where we invite them to join a, a space for dialogue if they're interested to, to unpack this topic further. And we started to see some people start to move. So one thing was to say, well, we cannot do a long burn, slow burn. It's not going to work on social media. And then also one of the things we realized very quickly was the trauma or rather the, the fatigue, the, the mental health challenges, engaging with this content um, on, on a regular basis was, you know, was was doing to the to the students that were engaging in these spaces. So, yeah. for instance, if you think about you know peaceful mediation that happens offline, it's like you bring people in a safe space when you bring you know. So there are less chances of them attacking you just because they you know you've prepped you know you've prepped them that we are coming for a dialogue. 
but on social media, there's a lot of attack that was happening where as you come into to to try and more, you know, have facilitated dialogue, you're either labeled as, as supporting one side or the other, or you know, just being targeted, especially if uh, people can identify you either by race or by gender or by ethnicity. Yeah. So things like that. So um so those are some of the challenges that were showing up. Um and we, we were trying to you know manage those challenges by creating support groups in you know within those communities that were engaging. So that if if I feel like I cannot engage in this conversation because um of that ethnic group that is being targeted, I can bring in somebody else who is a bit more neutral in that mm. sense of, you know, and we can walk together that path. So it moved away from just being a one person holding conversation into three people joining a conversation, facilitating dialogue as three people instead of one person. So the, yeah, like the one thing of bringing people in a room and one person sitting in the middle and trying to have a conversation that could not work and, and required a lot of support uh, and that. Um, and then the, the other things that we also started to realize were it's very difficult for for peace campaigns that we, we started seeing, for instance, like I mentioned, the one of the steps, the first step, the easiest one is to, to share peace messaging and show what, what is uniting a community instead of what is dividing them. But then we realized firsthand that that by itself will not work and it will fall flat and you'll end up just talking, speaking to the choir, talking to the mm-hmm. peace builders who already agree with that content. And, um, and that's why with that, we had to layer it with saying, well, there's another step that says creating change from within, right? So within your community members, within your family members, you know, there's that one person who is always polarizing a conversation and saying, I hate this group because they're X, Y, Z, right? Mm-hmm. So it's starting with them first because they know you and you know each other. So instead of just blasting messages of peace and saying, well, you know, we're all going to be peaceful. So we've seen some of that work offline. Where it's like peace rallies and, you know, it's like a campaign that is happening. Like, uh, even when we did Sisini Amani, our offline campaign was like stickers and banners and t-shirts. It's basically creating an, an air of peace building, a community of oneness. Mm-hmm. Um, online is not as easy, uh, because online is, you know, quite fragmented and, and, uh, people will tear, you know, apart very quickly hide under a, a, you know, a pseudonym or a pseudo account and just target you and say, well, you're funded by a particular organization that is causing conflict in the West. And it just goes completely um, off the rails. Um, and then um, another thing we also saw that does not work in the offline, in the online spaces is this, uh, it, the, 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 it's, it's something similar to censoring. Um, where, for instance, in an offline space where you tell somebody, don't say that, that is wrong. Just, just keep quiet, you know, or we, that is not allowed here. So on, in, in the digital space, saying that was also actually creating more, more and more tensions because people saying, why, you know, it's like freedom of speech uh, yeah. became a whole big conversation. Unlike what we've seen offline and, and offline, I think it's part, part of it is because I can see who is speaking and there is a, you know, uh, there's an awareness of, I know this person said this and, or there's a sense of shame if they say it in public. Mm-hmm. But in the social media space, you know, again, anonymity plays a big role. So when you tell somebody not to use key, some keywords or hate words, the first thing is like, who are you to tell me what to do? Yeah. You know, Facebook has not shut me down. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're now censoring my speech, you know, which is free speech. So understanding that there are some times that you'll have to listen to some of that content. Is, which is a, actually a strategy we call listening and de-escalating. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. where you first listen and say, okay, well, okay, tell me why, where is this coming from? You know, instead of say, telling them to keep quiet, it's more exploring the root cause of that hate so that you can tackle the problem and not just the speech. Um, those are some of the things that I'm thinking. Um, and then, <clears throat> yeah, and, and then also the fact that we are at the mercy of tech companies or the, 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 the digital platforms. If today Facebook, one, I remember sometime in 2021, Facebook went offline, I think for some, for some hours. And in Nigeria, everything came to a standstill, mm-hmm. right? Um, and just it shut down everything. So we, we could not continue our programming. And by the time people came back, up, you basically lost momentum and people are on to other things saying more propaganda about how this was a ploy by the government to hack the system, right? So it has already basically messed up your whole process that you had cultivated for quite some long time. Or if Facebook decides or Twitter or TikTok decides now, um, I remember there's a point we were looking at TikTok. They had, they had, you could not use the word, the term Islamophobia. And just the fact that you cannot address that topic using that word makes it very difficult. So you are basically up there mess. You don't have the freedom to have those conversations. Um, yeah. And if the system is down on that day, the speed at which you engage in also gets delayed and, you know, you kind of lose a lot of things in the process. Mm-hmm. So just understanding that the comfort at which we have in an offline conversation to talk to somebody is no longer there when you move into a digital space. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now I'm kind of, you guys are probably preparing for, who knows what with Twitter. Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's yeah, like, oh, great. Yeah. Super. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. Well, um, before we wrap it up, I definitely wanted to give you the opportunity to um, plug anything, make any announcements, um, calls to action mm-hmm. and, and the like. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think w- the one thing I really say is as a, as a, individual who's not maybe even if I remove my peace building heart is to say if you're if you're on any platform whether it's sms or you're even listening to radio and you can engage in that space i think um there are a couple of things that you know people can do you know just to try and push back against the harms that exist online and one of the things is just you know sharing sharing stories and taking up space of on that on that platform and not just sitting back because it then changes the platform into this ugly thing you know, because I remember one day you were talking about the humans of New York, for instance, oh, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Uplifting stories. It's not nothing to do with this feeling, but it kind of changes the perception of what these platforms are, are spaces of, right? It's not just all harm because, you know, that perhaps is what we're seeing. But if more people start to take up space, um, then perhaps there is an uh, opportunity to change. And also just flagging, not sharing content that is harmful, you know, because even if you're trying to answer questions. Um, shameless plug. Let me see. Uh, I have a con- uh, conference coming up in, uh, in Chemnitz, uh, Berlin, um, okay. in, uh, November 2nd. Yeah. And, uh, it's just, uh, we call it the, the build peace conference. Um, check it out if, uh, I think we'll, we'll be sharing some content on Twitter. Um, but, uh, yeah, just to bring in different stakeholders across the world. And, um, yeah, I don't know if you, if you'll be sharing the Peace in Our Pockets documentary where you can see more of our work. Yes. I always let, you know, the guest plug first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you all have received by this point that you're watching this, you know, the links for, um, accessing a film screen of Peace in Our Pockets really, you know, is a very cool, 
um, story and applications. And there's so many, you know, transferable lessons. Yeah. And you get to see one of the stars <laughs> that we just heard <laughs> from right now. Hey, Lips, you can yeah. see his uh, early earlier career um, wins. So that's where it um, all started. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. Um, if you won't totally. be inspired by that, you know, you'll be inspired by um I don't know what you'll be inspired by. If that doesn't, if this yeah. film doesn't inspire you, then you know, send us an email and we'll try to yeah. help you out. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Well, thanks again okay. so 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 much for um, doing this. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> All right. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Caleb from How to Build Up. I produce this podcast in beautiful, far northern California and acknowledge the Wintu people who, over the ages, have been stewards of this place. This is their ancestral and present home, and I'm committed to supporting work that they lead to meet the needs of their people. Thanks again to Caleb and a huge shout out to the How to Build Up team for the important work that they do. We need more peace builders in this world. So if you're inspired to learn more and get involved, more information and links are to be found on our website at civic-hackers.org. Hey, hackers, let's do this again next week. I like you. If the feeling's mutual go on over to civic-hackers.org to find out how to keep in touch. And with that, I'm Lori McNeil, wishing you all the good things between now and your next listen to the Civic Hacker podcast. In case you need a reminder, problems have solutions. Let's get to work. The Civic Hacker Podcast is a production of Civic Hacker Network, a networking and support hub for people using data and technology to create positive change in their communities. The audio is edited by Lily Conway, and Kate Allison writes our scripts. The Civic Hacker Network is a nonprofit organization fiscally hosted by the Open Collective Foundation. Join the network for free at civic-hackers.org.